Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever and whenever you're joining us from. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge Church, um, and it is so good to be with you. Today, we are wrapping up our Shadows series. If you've been tracking along with us for the last month or so since Easter, we've been talking all about the questions and the doubts that many of us, if we're honest, keep in the shadows for a whole number of reasons. And, and over the course of this last little while, maybe you've had a chance to actually reflect on those things or talk about those things, or maybe you've actually got to hear a little bit about some questions or doubts you may have had for a long time and never even discussed. Because the reality is, right, no matter who we are, we don't want to engage things that make us uncomfortable. Maybe we look at the doubts and questions that we have or the people around us who we love have, and we don't know how to respond. Someone asks us a question or poses to us a challenge about our faith, and we're just not sure where we should go or how we should answer. Maybe they don't ask that question, but we're terrified that they might. Maybe we're terrified that we ourselves hold those questions and we're afraid to ask them. What if my whole faith unravels? What if I can't find the answer to this question? What if my trust in God is affected? Is it disrespecting or dishonoring God to be doubting him in this way, to be struggling with these things, to have these kinds of questions? When I was younger and a new Christian, I remember being in a youth group context. And I remember having a lot of questions. And the amazing thing I love about being a youth pastor, and, and maybe you experience this if you have teenagers or if you've been around students, is that there's a certain age where you're just not afraid to ask questions or you're not afraid to be honest about this doesn't make sense or why is it like that or why would God do it this way? Recently, I had a student come and sit down with me and say, I just don't understand why God would do this thing in this way. I need to understand the answer to this question. But I remember being in youth and at one point sitting down, I was in a small youth group and we were doing this kind of Bible study discussion and it was this great moment. And I remember raising some questions, raising some questions about what God was like. And I don't even really remember what they were. I just remember they were some questions and the room got kind of awkwardly silent. And everyone was sitting there and nobody really seemed to know how to answer. And, and I remember sitting there and I wasn't offended that no one could answer, but I was a little bit confused. Why is no one saying anything? Is it, is it okay for me to ask this question? And then one of the leaders who loved Jesus, and I truly believe they were really well-meaning in this, they looked at me and said, you know, Dan, it's okay that you have that question, but this actually isn't the environment to ask that kind of question. And I remember in that moment thinking, well, if I'm not supposed to ask it in a church, where am I supposed to ask it? If the questions I have about God and Jesus and faith and Christianity can't be safely asked here, then, then where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to find these answers? See, the reason we chose to do this series, especially coming out of Easter, many of you are new to our church. Many of you are new to Christianity and faith in general. Some of you are here, you're just exploring. You wouldn't even call yourself a Christian yet. And the reason we decided we wanted to do a series where we talked about these questions is because we don't think that it should be the case that we look at these questions, these doubts and these struggles, and we say, this is not the place for that. Rather, we believe that our church, Ridge Church, should be the safest place 
for people to experience doubt, for people to walk through struggles in their faith, for people to hold up questions with authenticity and vulnerability and actually experience community where they can walk through those things well. What we actually believe is that doubt is not necessarily an enemy of our faith, but rather is something that God might be using to invite us into a deeper faith. Like the man who in Mark 9 saw Jesus desired that his son who was demon-possessed would be healed. And when Jesus says, do you have faith? He looks at him and he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is, I have doubt. I have questions. I'm not totally sure how this is going to work. But God, I believe that you might be doing something in this and I want to trust you. And the reason we've done this series is that we actually believe we need to enter into a dialogue and conversations about these things. That actually dialogue is better than monologue. That's why we have communities. That's why we write small group questions. That's why we're doing a Q&A, which I'll speak more to later on. Is because we actually want to enter into conversations about these questions and not act as if Jonathan or myself can stand up here and give you all the answers about every single question that you've ever had. Because that's what following Jesus is actually about. The real stuff of life. The greatest questions known to mankind. The big stuff of what it means for you and I to be a human. Recently, I was chatting with an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a while, and, and, and we were having this great conversation, and, and he and I knew each other about a decade ago, and we were really close, and we were having this conversation, and, and he said this thing that was really interesting to me. He said this thing, he said, I just feel done. I just kind of feel bored of following Jesus. Every time I want to discuss something that feels a little bit on the edge or, or a little bit challenging, it feels like I just get these pat answers and Sunday school answers and, and I get treated like I'm a kid or I get treated like I shouldn't be asking these questions. And, and I'm just tired and I'm bored of showing up to church and doing small talk and, and doing programs and doing all these things, but not actually being able to talk about the real stuff of life. And that's true for all of us. We don't want to settle for small talk. We don't want to settle for just pleasantries. We have deep questions that are etched onto our souls. We don't want to go through life on cruise control. We have all sorts of questions. And one pastor pointed out that they kind of fall into three categories. And the first is identity. The big question, who am I? Not what is my name, not what is my job, not who do I know, not how many Instagram followers do I have. Who am I really? What is my identity? Where do I fit in? How do I understand who I am in the context of the world, in the context of the place I live, in the context of everything happening around me? But then beyond that, we have questions of goodness. Everyone wants to be a good person, right? But who knows what that even means? What does that look like? How do we live well? How do I know if I'm a good person? How do I become a good person? What am I supposed to do with my life that actually makes the world a better place? And then finally, that leads to this third area of questions. And that's the question of power. How do I do it? Like, even if I know who I am, even if I know what I want, even if I know what I'm called to, how do I actually get there? Because I'm tired and I'm busy and there's lots going on and there's lots that is pushing against me in this world. And I think that the reality is that if we settle for pat answers and parroted truths that are mostly just recycled words that we're using from someone else, 
we will actually miss out on the fullness of what Jesus is offering us. See, my friends, Jesus is not inviting us into a life of following him that is boring. He is not inviting us into a life that is, that is boring and cruise control and shallow. He's inviting us into something beautiful and powerful and rich, but it will not be comfortable. And so when doubts and questions come, we have two options. And the first one is what we've aimed to do through this series. And it's really, really simple. It's to engage them. It's to enter into conversations. It's to enter into dialogues. It's to enter into learning and studying what the Bible has to say and what we can know about God and what it looks like to follow Jesus well. We can engage these things. We can enter into a life that is actually marked by pushing into those challenges and those struggles that we have, or we can distract ourselves. Because here's the reality, and here's one of the two greatest challenges that we face right now as a church, as a people trying to follow Jesus through doubt and questions. We live in an age of distraction. I remember um, a few years ago, iPhone released this screen time feature. And if you have an iPhone or, or any kind of smartphone, probably, you know what this feature is like, right? All of a sudden, your phone starts to show you what was already true, but you didn't really want to believe was true. And that's how much time you spend on it. I think it's a little bit ironic for me that every Sunday, for some reason, I don't know if this is every phone, but my phone sends me my screen report or my screen time update on Sunday mornings. And so, so Sunday morning, usually just a little bit before church, I get a little alert that says, this is how much time you spent on your phone on average per day this week. And every single time I cringe, every single time I go, what? No way. I have friends, I have family, I have a job. How could I possibly have spent that much time on an iPhone? There's no way I could have spent that much time. I was talking to a friend once who's in ministry and, and he said this really interesting thing. He says, Anyone, some, anytime someone uh, is talking with me and tells me they don't have time, I don't have time to serve or I don't have time to pray or I don't have time to show up to church or I don't have time for this, that, or the other thing. My question is always the same. Show me the screen time on your phone. Show me the breakdown of how many minutes a day you spend on Instagram or on email or on TikTok or whatever it may be. And we live in this place. We live in this reality, this cultural moment, the advent of technology and how it has exploded in the last 20 or so years has created a totally new world. Some statistics just to give us some context here. According to one researcher, the average iPhone user, so this is particular to Apple, but I think would be true of any smartphone, touches their phone 2,617 times per day. And that touching of the phone over 2,000 times happens and gives an average of 2.5 hours of time on the phone over 76 sessions or 76 times where the person picks up their phone, touches it, and says, I'm going to actually go on my phone, look at something, do something, whatever it may be. 2.5 hours per day on average. For millennials, that is my generation. I'm a, a baby millennial. Our generation, we are the worst at 5.5 hours a day averaging on our iPhones or smartphones. 
One scientific journal points to the fact that the human attention span since the advent of technology and its rapid acceleration in the last 20 years has gone down. In the year 2000, a study of human attention spans put it at 12 seconds, which doesn't sound like much, does it? 12 seconds is not very long, but um, since then, since 2000, up to 2019 was the last time we have reliable research on this, it has now dropped to eight seconds. The bar was already low at 12, it's now at eight. And to give you even more context, a typical household goldfish has a tension span of about nine seconds, which means we as human beings in the digital age have a shorter attention span than goldfish. Now you may see a problem with that or you may not, but Sean Parker, who is the first president of Facebook. Remember Facebook? It's old school now, but some of us remember the days of Facebook as the main social media, really the first social media. If you're familiar with the film, The Social Network, it was the guy who played, who was played by Justin Timberlake. He now is what he calls a conscientious objector to social media, to technology. Here's what he says about it. God only knows what this is doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about this. How do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? Parker added, the company achieved this by adding the like button or letting people comment on posts and pictures with Parker calling these a social validation feedback loop. This is exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with. Why? Because you are exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. That is to say that if you can trap people's attention, if you can give them little dopamine hit after little dopamine hit, you can control what people think about. You and I live in what is now called the digital economy or the attention economy. Everything is built in order to capture your attention as much as possible. The ads you see on TV, the things you see on your social media, what you hear on the radio, everything is geared to capture your attention. The marketing industry, which is primarily digital, operates to create advertisements that are based specifically to you that it takes all the data, all the understanding, everything that you do on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, or whatever it may be, and it, and it figures out what it needs to sell you. What are you most likely to buy? What is most likely to capture your attention? And it's all about the bottom line based on the websites you visit, the photos you look at, what you click like on, what does this person going to pay attention to so that we can understand how to sell more things to this person. See, what we need to understand is that when it comes to technology, particularly social media, is that you are not the customer, you are the product. That, that your attention is what is being chased. Your attention is what is being sold to marketing companies all over the world. That's why technology in some sense was created. It was created originally to assist us to make our lives easier, but now it controls us. The devices that we purchase for an easier and more comfortable life are the very things now holding us back from being able to pay attention to the things that actually matter. How many of us are distracted by our cell phones, our computer screens, and our TVs, and we can't pay attention to our families, to our kids, to our work, 
to the things in our lives that actually matter. But here is the challenge for us in the age of digital distraction that the Bible has pointed to long before Facebook or Instagram ever was created. Here's the reality, my friends. You will become what you pay attention to. You will become what you pay attention to. This has always been true. And that's why the apostle Paul writes to the Romans. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. As if to say, in light of what Jesus has done, looking at who Jesus is, looking at the cross, looking at the resurrection, sacrifice your whole bodies. That is what God is calling us to. Our whole lives dedicated to following Jesus. How do we do that? Verse two, do not be conformed to this age. That means that this age for the Romans and for us has something that it's calling us and saying it wants to form us and make us into a certain type of person. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and what is pleasing and what is the perfect will of God. What is Paul saying? That you are being formed And you are either being formed by the age that you were living in or you are being formed by the way of Jesus. That one way or another, you are becoming someone. You are becoming something and what you pay attention to will determine what that thing is. If you only pay attention to things that are angry and bitter and rude and vulgar and mean and terrible, you will become a person who is bitter and angry and mean and vulgar and rude and terrible. And if you pay attention to Jesus in the words of, I believe it's Colossians, when we set our minds on the things that are above, we become like what we pay attention to. That is the goal of discipleship. That is the core of what following Jesus looks like. And so often when we approach these topics, doubt and questions, what we want to do is keep them in the shadows because it's uncomfortable. It's scary. And we can't always get all the answers we want. We, we can't see things clear, as clearly as we want to. There are things that the Bible says that are confusing. There are things that the Bible says that are challenging. There are things that the Bible says that are offensive to us and our Western cultural sensibilities. And so it is so much easier to turn on the TV or to go on social media and distract ourselves from the questions that gnaw at our souls. Or we try to use the same technology that distracts us to just give us the answers because it allows us to remain anonymous and avoid real interaction with other human beings. Here's what, how two authors put it in their book. Young people, but I think this is true for all of us, are looking to their devices to make sense of the world around them. They use them, that is their smartphones, as their counselors, their entertainers, their instructors, even their sex educators, among other digital Sherpa roles. You know what a Sherpa is? One who guides another. Why would I ask anyone else for advice when I can just ask Google? Why make the effort to talk to parents or teachers or friends or those in a church community when you can just ask the smartphone in your hand? 
Now, this line comes from a book called Faith for Exiles by David Kinneman and Mark Matlock. It's a book I've read a couple of times. Many of our youth leadership team has read it. I cannot recommend this book enough. It looks at data and how technology has been shaping the culture that we live in, but also how the gospel and the beauty of Jesus can actually reshape how we live out our faith in what they call digital Babylon. I highly recommend that. I have a couple copies of that book. If you'd like to borrow it, please feel free to reach out. The thing is, we want answers, but we want them without risk. We have this deep desire to not leave the doubts and questions. We can't fully ignore them no matter how hard we try to distract ourselves. Those doubts, those questions, they remain. And we want answers. We want to know why God is it like this? Why God does this happen? Why God? Why God? Why God? But we never want to engage it in real community. We don't want to draw them out into the open. We don't want to tell anyone what we're thinking. We're afraid of what might happen if we do. But here's what one author, Andy Crouch, who wrote a book called The TechWise Family, said about this. He said, technology promises us a life without risk. I don't have to risk being rejected by Google. My smartphone will not think less of me if I tell them what I'm struggling with. The internet browser on my computer, if I type in a question, isn't going to give me a strange look. Technology promises us a life without risk, but here's the problem. You cannot experience love without risk. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything truly and your heart will be wrung out and possibly broken. We cannot have love without risk. And if we are people who want to follow Jesus, our goal, the goal of our lives, my friends, is not to eliminate risk, is not to chase after comfort, but it is to be formed into people who are defined as Jesus was by a life of love. Paul writes to the Colossian church. Paul writes to lots of churches and almost always he's specifically writing to them about specific things. And, and in the beginning of a lot of his letters, he, he includes prayers. Here's what I'm praying for you. Here's what I long for for you as your pastor, as someone who cares for you deeply. Here's what I desire for you. Listen to what he writes in Colossians 1, verses 9 and onward. For this reason also, Paul says, since the day we heard about this, that is what's going on in the Colossian church, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and all spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might so that you can have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Do you hear what Paul's hope is? He's not praying for them to have an easy, comfortable life. He's not praying for everything to be okay. He's not praying that they would get all the answers. He's praying that they would walk worthy and please God. He's praying that their lives would be marked by the fruit that comes from doing good work and being shaped into the image of Jesus. He's praying that they would grow in knowledge of God. And don't get this mixed up. He's not saying, I want you to have more information about God. The Greek word there is knowledge in terms of relationship that he wants them to know God, to experience him, to understand what God is doing in their life and in their midst and in their community, even to be strengthened in power. 
It's the same questions we talked about, questions of identity. Who am I? You are those who are loved by God. Questions of goodness. How do I become a good person? You become a person of love and you bear the fruit of the Spirit. And how do I do it? You are strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, our goal as followers of Jesus, when we engage doubt, when we engage struggles, the reason we've done this series is not to provide every answer. Our goal is formation. Our goal is formation in the image of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 has this little verse. It says, for right now we see as though through a mirror dimly, we will not get all the answers. If you have listened to this series and if you have felt somewhat unsatisfied that we don't have all the answers, that Jonathan or our church staff or whatever it may be, don't have all the answers, I'm sorry, but that is simply the reality of what it means to follow a God who is a God of mystery. There's many things that God has revealed to us, but he has not revealed everything we see now as through a mere dimly. And if our goal is formation, then we need to be able to keep our attention on Jesus because if we can't keep our attention on Jesus, we can't become people of love. Love is slow and meandering. What's more romantic, running through the drive-through at Wendy's because you're in a rush or a seven-course meal with lots, a glass of wine with each course and a chance to talk and, and look your spouse in the eyes. What's more romantic? Love is slow. It's patient and it's kind. Andy Crouch again writes this, technology is devoted primarily to making our lives easier and so it discourages us from disciplines, especially ones that involve disentangling ourselves from technology. Technology is trying to prevent us consciously or unconsciously from doing anything but spending more time on that technology. It's easy to get distracted because that's how social media has been created. But we have to fight against that. But I think it's more than just technology and distraction that holds us back from engaging these questions and engaging in formation. We also live in an age of distrust. We are in the midst of a cultural moment where the church, broadly in North America or in Canada or whatever it may be, for some reasons legitimate and some reasons less so, has lost its relational and cultural authority to speak into just about anything. If you go back even 20, 30 years, you'd notice on news reports and newscasts that whenever something bad happens, 9-11 or a natural disaster, what would happen is you'd actually see um, those who are faith leaders in a country or um, a community or whatever it may be, they would be invited on a news broadcast. Where is God in this? Why has God allowed this to happen? How is God working in this? What is God going to do about this? There was some kind of this idea that Christianity had a place in the cultural um, current to speak into something. But now, that's not the case. Scandal after scandal of Christian leaders, our culture's perception of Christians as bigoted and hateful. I remember I was interacting with someone recently who's not a Christian, um, found out I was a pastor and said this really interesting thing. I'm so surprised that you're a Christian. You're such a nice guy, which is a little bit concerning and shows his perception of Christians that me being a so-called nice guy was opposite to what he would understand a Christian to be. 
And then we live in a post-truth era where we flattened it out and we said, whatever your truth is, whatever you wanna live, whatever works for you, as long as it doesn't harm anyone else, that is fine, that is truth. And, and what this has been marked by, particularly in the church, is what's been called the deconstruction movement. Defined by one author, deconstruction is not the same thing as doubt. Doubt is something that happens to you. Deconstruction, in this author's words, is the proactive dismantling of stuff that we believe. Doubt happens to you. Deconstruction is when we start to actively dismantle things. For many, this has taken place after growing up in the church and, and hearing and seeing all sorts of things. And this typically flows out of people's experience with God, but, but not really people's experience with God, more specifically, people's experience with the church. A.J. Swoboda, who's written a fantastic book on doubt and deconstruction called After Doubt, writes this. He says, people don't deconstruct because of Jesus. They deconstruct because of Christians. I've never had a conversation with someone who has deconstructed their faith, who has deconstructed their Christianity, who has torn down to the studs what it means to be a Christian. I've never had them say to me, I read the gospels and I just don't know if I trust this Jesus guy. I've seen all that Jesus is like and I've read the New Testament and I've read the Bible and I just don't trust Jesus. More often than not, what I hear from people when I have conversations with them is questions and challenges and mistrust of Christians and of the church. But the reality is there is such a thing as something called healthy deconstruction. That's where we actually use the Bible, where we think about God and who he actually is to critique what's broken in the world and in the church. Because there is brokenness in the church, because the church has failed at many points throughout human history, throughout thousands of years and recently. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what is more deconstructing than how Jesus frames so many of his teachings? You have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said that this is how you're supposed to treat your enemies and this is what you are supposed to do. Jesus oftentimes will quote scripture and then re-engage it. He will deconstruct what it seems to be and then reconstruct it into the core of what God was actually doing. The Reformation. Martin Luther and John Calvin and these heroes of our faith did a form of deconstruction when they looked at the church and they said, the way the church is operating is not right. We need to get back to the Bible and what it actually teaches about what it means to have a saving relationship with Jesus. That the core picture is that we are saved by faith in Christ and in Christ alone. They deconstructed what was happening in the so-called church in order to get back to the core of who God really was or the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and other leaders in that space who looked at the Bible and looked at how people were interpreting the Bible and, and taking scripture and misusing it in order to perpetuate and utilize racism and evil for their own selfish gain. They deconstructed what people had said God wanted, had said God cared about in order to get back to what was really True, there's a form of healthy deconstruction, but then there's the form of unhealthy deconstruction. And that's not using the Bible or God, that's using what feels right to me to reinterpret who God is and what the Bible actually says. It's taking our prior moral assumptions and saying God has to fit in the box and agree with me about everything. We take what we think about money or sexuality or power or politics and say God has to fit that box. 
Judges, the book of Judges, where nothing really seems to go right. There's these sparks of hope, and then it never goes right for the Israelite people. There's this incredible verse at the end of it that basically sums up the whole thing. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. That is, no one really had any idea what was going on. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and it was a disaster. Ultimately, unhealthy deconstruction is about saying, I want to do whatever I want, and I want God to affirm it. But for many, behind deconstruction and behind um, engagement of doubts is church hurt or church trauma that has created a mistrust and a suspicion of Christians, the church, and of Jesus himself. Some have been hurt or lied to by those who are pastors or priests in a number of different ways. Many have felt lied to or misused or mistreated by a church. For some, something specific happened where you were hurt and you were struggling and people wrapped it up in spiritual language but treated you really poorly, gossiped about you, harmed you with their words or their actions and did it in the name of Jesus. Maybe you walked through a struggle and you felt abandoned by the Christian community, the loss of a marriage or the loss of a dream or the loss of something. And you felt like if I don't have my life perfectly together, I'm not really welcome here. Maybe you know someone like this. Maybe there's someone on your mind right now who you love, who has walked away from the faith or seems to be in the process of walking away from the faith. A family member, a friend, maybe even a spouse because of church hurt and trauma that they hold. And for many, the question is not whether or not you can trust God, but whether or not you can move past and heal from the hurt and pain and trauma that you hold and have experienced in the context of the church and those who call themselves followers of Jesus. Now, I have, for the most part, had a beautiful experience with what it means to be a part of the church, but like anyone, I hold wounds and I have parts of my past. I remember some hard things happened at one point in my life, and for a certain amount of time, there was a church that I could not drive by without experiencing a form of a panic attack. That there was so much hurt in my heart. There were so many things that I needed to unpack in the context of safe community that just driving by the place made me feel stressed out and overwhelmed. And for that, for those of us who carry church hurt, for those of us who have been harmed by Christians, no amount of knowledge No amount of articles, no amount of factoids will fix the problem. It's deeper than just more information. There's always a question beneath the question, right? Why would a good God allow suffering? What's the question beneath that? Does God actually care about me? Why would God send people to hell? What's the question beneath that? Is God actually good? Can I actually trust him? Is science in competition with faith? Am I an idiot for believing this stuff? Am I a fool? Am I just being naive? See, my question for you today is, is your problem really with God? Or is there something that in Jesus' name was attached to you and carries deep wounds and deep hurt? Wounds that still feel fresh and open. Wounds that you are now projecting onto God himself because you don't know how to walk through that. 
my invitation for you today is that Jesus wants to meet you and care for those wounds. That if you've been hurt by the church, if you have been hurt by Christians, if you have been hurt by a pastor in any way, shape, or form, there is deep love and grace for you from King Jesus. Thomas Akempis said this, he said, a humble knowledge of thyself is a surer way to God than a deep search after learning. That is to say, for many of us, the journey of self-reflection to understand where we carry hurt and where we carry pain is an important part of the process of walking through our doubts and our struggles. And maybe it's this kind of deep self-reflection that you need. Or maybe it's dealing with distraction and getting control of your addiction to a cell phone. Maybe like me, it's both. And there's work you need to do in every regard, but the question remains the same as we close out this series. Where do we go from here? Because a sermon series on doubt is not the solution, at least not in full. We have to keep going. This has to be the start, not the end. We have to keep talking and having a dialogue. We have to keep pressing in to what it means to be the church, to what it truly means to be followers of Jesus, not just in name, but in action. As I was praying about this sermon and how we close out this series as a church, God brought this passage to mind and I wanna read it to you and leave you today with two practices that I think are core for us to be able to, in a healthy, safe, and powerful way, move forward in our call as disciples of Jesus. So I'll read it to you and then two quick practices for you to take, one familiar, one maybe a little bit unfamiliar to all of us. Here's what it says in James chapter five in the closing words of his letter to a church. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. See, it's this interesting verse, that's this encouragement at the end of this letter that James has written. And, and often what we'll do is we'll make it a little bit about, oh, well, this is the practice of what you're supposed to do and come get anointed with oil if you're sick. And, and I'm not saying it's not that, but I'm saying there's something deeper and wider that he's actually trying to communicate and two things that I think we can learn from this little passage. One is our desperate need for a practice of community. What has been so beautiful and amazing for me and our staff over the last month is to be hearing the stories of conversations that are happening, that this series has stirred up, conversations that happen in rich communities, conversations that are happening between friends over meals or over coffee, conversations in the lobby, conversations on the phone or over text, whatever it may be. I, I've been deeply blessed by getting together with our community group that meets at my wife and I's house to just discuss and, and engage these questions. It's been so powerful to enter into this dialogue. There is nothing boring about following Jesus when we actually press into the things that matter and we do so with people that we truly love. Shallow community will not do. Small talk and pretentious um, pretending to be close with people when we're not really willing to lean in will not. But a real experience of community actually is the place where we can walk through these things. And so my challenge for you today is what does community actually look like for you? 
If you're not a part of a rich community, I cannot encourage you enough and deeply enough that after our summer break, you need to get plugged into one. It, alongside Sunday mornings, is the primary way that we at this church want to follow Jesus together. We cannot gather for an hour and pretend like that is enough to sustain a lifetime of discipleship to Jesus. Get into a rich community, or maybe you're already in a community, but you need to go deeper. You actually need to be willing to be vulnerable. You actually need to show up and not just argue about theology, but talk about how you're really doing to share what's actually going on in your life, to share the questions that you have, not for the sake of debate and argument, but for the sake of becoming a person of love. Maybe your next step in community is to trust someone, to ask for prayer, to be honest about the doubts that you're dealing with, to be honest about the fears that you carry. In Genesis 2, um, it tells us that it is not good. God looks and says, it's not good that man should be alone. All the time we wanna make that a marriage passage, and some extent it is, but it's also a passage about the nature of what it means to be human. We were built for relationship. You were built for relationship. No one is an island. We need each other. You cannot follow Jesus in a vacuum. Unhealthy community is the place where we are most wounded. And that might be your story and it might be hard to enter back into community because unhealthy community can cause deep wounds, deep hurts, deep mistrust. What I want you to hear today is the invitation of Jesus. Unhealthy community might very truly be the place where you have been most wounded, but healthy community is the place where we are most healed. And then the second practice that I want to leave you with, and this one might seem a little out of the ordinary to community, which would seem normal to most of us. The second practice I want to invite you to is confession. And now most of us have this weird idea of confession, right? You're in a booth, you're with a priest, you're going through stuff, you're getting given instructions on what kind of prayers you need to pray and all that kind of thing. Or some of us have reduced the idea of confession as like, well, that's a me and God thing. I confess my sins to God, I deal with it. It's just me and God and that's all it is. But the reality is that a practice of confession is actually a beautiful picture of what it means to be the church and be in community. To enter into community, to enter into relationship with someone that is safe, with someone that we trust, with someone that we know deeply And the idea of the priesthood of all believers actually means that we can confess our sins to one another. And I love the way James puts it, right? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Now, this isn't just a physical healing. This is a healing that happens from the inside out. Our souls, our stories can be healed through the power of actually confessing our sin to one another. And oftentimes we look at confession and we say, well, that's just about bad things I've done. If I looked at porn or if I was a terrible person to my spouse or if I did something awful, I'll confess my sin and that's good. I just need an accountability partner. But confession is actually so much more than that. We can confess the sins that have been done to us. We can share those places in our story that we don't feel safe to normally share and say, this thing has happened to me and it's this burden and it's this weight on me. We can share the wounds that we carry and then in community, people can come around us, surround us and pray for us. We can share, we can confess our questions and our struggles and our burdens. So often the Bible talks about we bear one another's burdens. Your community, your friends, the people who love you cannot bear your burdens if you won't tell them what they are. 
When we keep things in the dark, they fester. Our wounds will not heal unless they are properly cared for. The questions, the struggles, the doubts, and the sins that we face will never, ever heal and get better until we bring them into the light. And the practice of confession invites us to experience the voice of Jesus spoken over us. That the idea of the priesthood of all believers is that we act for one another as the voice of Christ to speak the reality of the gospel. That when someone comes to us or when we go to someone to confess sin, to confess struggle, that we can hear the truths of the gospel spoken over us. That when someone confesses sin, we don't meet it with, you are such a screw up, I can't believe that. That we don't meet it with, I cannot believe you did that, you have totally messed this up. That we meet it with the, the voice of Jesus in the gospel. You are forgiven, you are loved, By the work and blood of Christ, you are a child of God. The practice of confession invites us to engage our doubts, our questions, and our struggles in the safest way possible. As we close, I want to leave you with this verse from John chapter 1. The light has shone into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Doubt is not destroying your faith. Doubt is an invitation for you to enter into a deeper place of faith. And so the practice of community and the practice of confession engages and battles against the distraction and the distrust that we experience in this moment that we might have the light of Christ shine into our lives, shine into our communities, shine into what we need that we might experience the power of the gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have invited us not to a life of boredom on cruise control, but a life where we can engage the hardest and most challenging realities. That even though we only see through a mirror dimly that you meet us there, that the ultimate call, the ultimate question, the ultimate meaning and purpose of our lives is that you are forming us into people who look more and more like you, King Jesus. And so I pray that as we move from this series, that it wouldn't just be a bunch of information that we've talked about, but that you would actually continue to work in us these disciplines and these practices of community and confession that we might in the context of the church find safety and find healing and that we might in the practice of confession hear the gospel spoken over us by those who love us and be reminded of the truth of who we truly are, children adopted by you of how we can experience goodness through the work of your spirit in our lives and of how that happens. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are desperate for your work in our lives, that we can do nothing apart from you, that we cannot find the answers, that we cannot engage these struggles. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are present and that you are at work. And so we invite you, Lord Jesus, to shine your light into the shadows of our hearts that we might be healed. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing. And we invite you to move and to work however you would. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.